on? Is this on? Okay. Um, hey, thank you guys. As we settle, as we just settle in, and we uh, um, people make their choices, you know, in or out. Uh, we'll give that. It's okay if you're. Uh, I. It's okay. Worst things have been said on this mic. Yeah. Um, uh, <clears throat> All right. Uh, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I just wanted to. I uh, uh, just wanted to say thank you again for just giving me an opportunity to share or to speak. I think I've said this uh, before. Uh, I'm not somebody who. Um, I'm probably not somebody who should be doing these a lot or lecturing a lot. Um, I'm not uh, not worthy to be doing this, but. Uh, if I'm going to give a talk, it's because it's something, um, or if I've been asked to do it, it's been something that I've struggled, either I'm struggling with, right, I've been thinking about, or currently reading at the time, right? And so that's generally, this is generally how I speak, it's a confession, right? That this is just a confession, and I'm asking for your prayers as I confess, you know, uh, to all of you publicly, you know? which I guess is how it used to be, right? We used to confess publicly, and so uh, this is a confession, so please, please pray for me. Um, but I do think if there was one, if there was like an aspect of, of things that I, could, that I could speak on, or if I had a perspective as the more we do these adult talks and give these meetings, if there was one thing that I thought maybe I could share is that I'm not a, you know, I don't have my master's in theology, I'm not in that sense or one of those, but I think I, think I, I, I tried to phrase this, and, and forgive me if this is a heresy, that I might be like an an orthodox sociologist, right? Like, I think there's like a sociological perspective, right? That can bring on our orthodox faith, right, to come in, right? Sociology meaning like the, you know, the building of our systems, the building of society, the how we build these structures and ways of doing things, right? And I think about this a lot, right, in the sense of our faith and how it, how it really reflects in our society. And, um, and, and I, somebody sent me this, like maybe two, two years ago, I saw this Someone sent me this sticker, right? And it said, and it said, stop trying to sit at the tables Jesus flipped. And I felt like this was like an indictment at me, right? Like somebody sent this to me at a time where I really needed to like hear it. Um, and I don't think I'm going to give, I'm not going to talk today. I don't think we're going to talk today about that specific story, right, in the Bible. That's something that's been, you know, well, well spoken of. It's been, we've talked about this a lot, right? It's very, very, and it's in, it's in two different times we talk about Jesus flipping the tables in the temple. And um, that's not what this is about, right? So we're not talking about that specific moment. Why the reason I felt like it was an indictment when I heard this is because I think it's a broader statement. When I, when I, hear, when I hear someone say, stop trying to sit at the tables Jesus flipped, I'm not hearing to myself that it's just about money, right? Or this is about selling or trading in the temple or any of those things. I think it was like, stop trying to be one with the world, right? Stop trying to be one with the world. Stop chasing power. Stop chasing fame. Stop chasing thing, worldly things, right? That's how I heard this when it came at me, right? When it came at me, when I heard this, it wasn't just about that story. It was about everything um, that, we had, that we had going on. Um, and Peter, uh, Peter Yusuf, who, if you don't know, is in charge of these adult meetings, uh, he, gave, uh, um, he gave a really good talk uh, a few weeks ago, maybe it was like a month ago. Uh, he, gave, he gave a talk, and he talked about generational wealth, right? And what it would mean about your legacy. And I don't think we talked, I, I don't think we got to the end of that conversation. I think it's an, I think it's an open-ended conversation. So I want to keep building on that talk. So if you're going back to what Peter uh, talked about, and he talked about generational wealth, he talked about 
your legacy, how will you be remembered, how you're passing things down to your children, right? Um, I think it was a really, really powerful saying. And the way I took that and the way I reflected on, on Peter's talk um, that week as well is I really thought back about this idea of, um, oh, wrong one. I really thought about this idea of our legacy and I really thought about how, how we can be remembered. And some of us were very blessed this past Thursday to attend the service of our, our beloved Uncle Sammy, right, on Thursday. Many of you were there, right? We were, we were in this. And I, I, I challenged some of us, all of us who were there, those of us who were there, to share with those who weren't, right, and, for those, and, and to really talk about what was discussed by his daughters, by his family, by the people who were there. What, was, what were the main subjects when we were talking about Uncle Sammy in that service, right? At no point in that, in that discussion of that day, was there, was there, excuse me, no point in that service was there discussion of his, you know, career or his material goods or how much wealth he abounded on earth, right? Or, you know, what kind of, you know, thing, things that he did from a worldly standpoint. Over and over and over again in that service, there was a discussion of how Christ-like this human being was while he was on earth, right? So while we had him on earth, how Christ-like he was. So we asked this, and so I bring this up not to get emotional again. I already gave you guys an emotional talk like a, a, few, a month, <laughs> a little while back. This will be a little, little more lighthearted. Um, but I bring this because I think this is what I'm fascinated with from an, like from an orthodox kind of sociology standpoint when I say this. I'm fascinated by this idea that our values very rarely line up with our behavior, right? I say this again, like, are we living a life where our values are aligned with our behavior? And I'm fascinated by the fact that Monday through Thursday, Monday through Friday, we live a certain way, and then we come on Sundays, we hear a certain message, and then we go back to living another way. And sometimes I even feel like on Sundays, we do our best as we can for two hours, right, to hang on to whatever blessing we can get in those two hours, and the second the service is over, do our values align with the behavior that we're behaving. And I'm not talking behavior, this isn't Sunday school where we're talking about our behavior of like, you know, are we doing right or wrong or good or bad, right? I'm talking about our behavior like in the systems and in how we do things consistently. And nobody, nobody embodied that better than Uncle Sammy, right? Nobody did. And I think that's when I think, if we talk about, when Peter asked us that question, it was a very poignant question when he asked us that a month ago in this talk. It was like, how do we want to be remembered? I pray every day that everyone else is remembered the same way Uncle Sammy was remembered, right? Can we be remembered that way? The way that people, his family spoke of him, the way that, that it, the, the core of what we spoke about that day for him, I pray, I pray for that. You know, what will be our legacy? You know, there's a, um, uh, again, I'll try to back this up with a, with, with a lot of data, but there's a many, many, many a longitudinal study that's happened over time where they ask people on their deathbeds, right? What are your biggest regrets? What did you think about most? What are you thinking about right now over the course of your life as you're looking at towards the end of your life? And I personally had a, a good chance to go through this with my father just, you know, six, six months ago, spending time with him, knowing that his days were coming, how many questions I asked him, you know, during that time. And this was not just my personal experience, but again, I think backed up with a lot of data behind it, is what were, what were your biggest regrets? What did you think, what are you thinking about now on your deathbed, you know, when, you, when, you, when you've lived this, this long life? And over and over and over again in these studies, it always shows that I wish I worked less. I wish I spent less time at work. I wish I spent less time trying to respond to those emails as fast as I could. I wish I spent less time, right, trying to climb up the corporate ladder at work. That is like literally number one with a bullet, the most, the most regret that comes with it. In fact, there was a, there's a great study, and it was called the, uh, 
the American, uh, American Regret Project. There's a guy named Daniel Pink who, who does this kind of work, right? He, he, does, he wrote a book on the power of regret, right? And he wrote this, 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 like, this long book called The Power of Regret. And in this project, again, probably the largest study on regret, right, uh, worldwide. And they, they collected just, you know, millions upon millions of people's regrets as they, as they pulled them in. And they basically broke them down. They were able to categorize, word, word, excuse me, I'll slow down categorize worldwide regret into basically four buckets. And number one was foundational. That's usually career work, what I just said. So number one with a bullet was career and work. Number two was like boldness. I wish I took more risks, right? I wish I took more risks. I wish I, I, wish I wasn't so conservative in my life, right? I wish I was a little more bold in the things that I did. Number three was always moral, right? Which was going back, like lamenting the bad things I did, right? Maybe I made some mistakes. Maybe I, I wronged somebody, right? I, I was poor in my relationship building, right? That type of morality. And then four was connection, all of them filled, in, filled into, one of the, into one of those four buckets. Connection meaning like, I wish I was closer with people. I wish I would have spent more time with my family, right? So we hear this over and over again from people towards the end of their life. We hear this, again, across the world, across gender, across race, across ethnicity, across every single uh, variable you could put in there. It all is the same. But when we have these things, right, we talk about what is our, right, what is our behavior in relation to knowing this knowledge? What's our orthodox behavior in relation to knowing these things. Do we really live this way? Do we really live knowing, right, that this, this type of regret is what we may likely feel towards the end of our life? And the reason I put that, the, the, the picture up there, this is because they talk about boldness when I was reading this about the, the, the when I was reading about the um, American Regret Project, right, we talk about boldness and there was always this idea of like, well, I'll just do it later in life, right? I'll do it la- later in life, I will do this. When I'm older, I will do that. And in, in, in Arabic, we like to say, inshallah, right, it'll happen. Malish, you know, inshallah, right? One day, Dennis, you and I will, will hang out, you know? One day, you know, inshallah, you'll come over for dinner, you know, and we'll make that happen, right? How many times, how many times do we, do we say it to each other? Inshallah, this, God, God's will will work it out, right? And then there's that regret, right? There's the regret of like, well, I didn't make it happen. Right? There's a lot of studies that show too, right, that uh, again, another sociological study I love, right, was always talking about how uh, if I was to say to Dennis, hey, man, we should have dinner sometime, dude. You know, let's, let's go to dinner. Right? Let's go have dinner. The likelihood of that dinner happening is very, very low, right? Like every time we see each other, we're like, man, we should hang out. We should go to dinner. Very low, right? But what actually would make that dinner happen, that connection with, with, with Dennis and I happen, if I said, Dennis, listen, Friday night at 6 o'clock, grab your stuff. You're at my house at this specific time. See my door, and then it makes it happen. Right? Instead of wishing, inshallah, one day we'll hang out, saying I took the risk and put myself out there. Maybe, he gets, maybe I get rejected. Maybe he doesn't like me. Maybe he says no. Right? Maybe, maybe things don't work out. But I at least take the risk and that opportunity that I, I put myself out there. And that boldness is what, we're, is what we miss. Again, these regrets, that we, we, we think about this a lot. Um, and again, going back to what we talked about with generational wealth and what we're trying to do. Are we, are, does our behavior align right, with our actions? So behavior align with our values? And what, and what we're trying to do. Um, so a lot of this, when I heard, Peter, when I heard you talk, I read the question I kept asking myself over and over and over again was like, well, what is success then, right? If someone said, stop trying to sit at the tables Jesus flipped, right? If someone said, stop trying to sit at these tables that Jesus flipped, and someone said, why are you chasing power? Why are you chasing these things? Then what is success? What is our definition? What is our definition here, right? It's not going to be the same, but at least culturally, right? And at least from an Orthodox perspective, like, what is our definition of success, right? What's our definition of success? And in America, and I'm saying this because I, I see a multi-generational group in front of me, right? So I see a multi-generational group in front of me as we speak. In America, we have changed, and this is a huge 
issue we have right now in culturally in America that we have changed work into our religion, right? That workplace culture has now become basically religious culture for us. And I don't mean that in a one-for-one trade, like we worship work and we worship God in the same way, but it has replaced our day-to-day living, right? Anybody heard of like this grind culture, right? That we produce, especially with young people these days, right? This is a big thing, right? Grind culture, right? You hear about these with like Silicon Valley bros, right? Like the Silicon bros, right? They get up every day and we grind culture. What'd you do today? I woke up at six. I started working. I neglected my family. I didn't talk to my wife. I didn't do anything. I drank a gallon of water, right? I worked out three times, but I answered 500 emails and I worked and I went to bed, right? At nine o'clock and I worked all day. That's grind culture, baby. That's what I do, right? You've seen this. I I live, I I counsel people like this on a daily basis, right? And I can admit to you all, confess to you all that I'm a victim. I was a victim of that for many years as well, right? This idea of like grinding, right? Work is the most important thing. In America, we have chosen in many, many ways to put work above all else, right? And a lot of us come from, right, when we talk about trying to find success, and again, the multi-generational group in front of me, right, forgive me when I say this, I'm not saying this as uh, uh, something that I'm judging you on, right, but I'm saying this is something that can't, comes with, right? There's a lot of good, again, a lot of good sociological, anthropological studies on immigrant culture. When immigrants move to America, right, they tend to overvalue, right, and overemphasize success right, in a monetary way, and they tend to over, overemphasize success in a career path, right, like how many of us grew up, um, <clears throat> how many of us grew up and were told to basically had three choices for careers, right, those are, we had three choices, right, you made a doctor, engineer, or a lawyer, right, or a pharmacist, is, pharmacist was like a, 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 like an acceptable substitute, right, like maybe, like, okay, maybe you didn't do well in med school, you can potentially be a pharmacist, and that would be okay for you, um, I'll never forget the day I told my parents. I told my, I told my parents. I told my dad this. <laughs> I told my dad this. My dad was like, he's again talking about careers. What do you want to be? And I tell my dad, I'm like, you know what, dad? I think I really, really want to be a teacher. Like, I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. Like, teach, in my heart, I always wanted to be a teacher. I'm like, I was like 13, 14, 15, I wanted to be a teacher. And he's like, oh, Habibi, so you want to be poor. So you want to be poor. <laughs> So you want to be poor? I know. I said I want to be a teacher. I want to make like a difference in the world. And I want to like counsel young people, and I want to like be there for them. I want to be a good role model. Like this is what like we're learning at church, right? Again, the connection to church, right? I'm like this is what I hear every week, right? Every Sunday I go to church and I hear these sermons from Abuna and the deacons and everybody and my Sunday school teachers, and like I want to be like them. I want to do like them. No, 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 no. You have to be, you know, do something that makes money. And again, I'm not. This is not a judgment. It's not an indictment. It's not of those things, right? But this is culturally speaking. This is not an Egyptian thing. The studies have shown that this is across the board, right? Across ethnicity, across, across uh, cultures, immigrants moving to America, right? This is tend to overemphasize or have that frame, that, that frame of mind. And a lot of this comes from a survivor mode, right? If you're coming from a place where you didn't have very much, right? It's very understandable. It's not more, not only is it understandable, it's like we can be expected, right? If you're coming from a place where poverty and fighting for every inch of your life was the norm, then you're going to come to the land of plenty and you're going to oversize those, I mean, overemphasize those things. The studies, the NBA Players Association puts out studies uh, every year early. This was like, I was reading this in the early 2000s, right? How many, how many professional athletes have you seen come from poverty? We get their first contract and then they're being broke, right? Because they came from a place, some of them, some of them came from a place where it was like really, really tough, right? Really, really tough for them. Grew up with so little. Get their first, you know, million dollar check and then it's gone two days later, Right? Because that overemphasized, that, that perspective was hard to gain. So I, I understand it. We understand. But now, for us here today, there's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with chasing those things. There's nothing wrong with success. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is how can we start reframing and redefining what success is, right? How can we start reframing and redefining what it is? 
so that it doesn't have these negative impacts on us now. Especially if I talk to this group here, there's a lot of us here today, there's a lot of people who listen to these online, right? Generally speaking, in America right now, in Orange County, where we've come after the sacrifices our parents have made for us to come here, we are okay. We've put ourselves in a position where we, we have a lot. Where I'm standing here as the most privileged person I, I could ever imagine I could be because my parents sacrificed, right, what they did to bring me here today. I told my dad that a lot, you know, early on. So it's, it's normal, but is it antiquated for us, right? Is this now a way of thinking, like, antiquated for us to think about, right? How we, how we think about this. And are we aligned with the world's view of success or the Lord's? Again, another time my parents got mad at me. Same time. I said, well, if I'm not going to be a teacher, then I think I want to be a psychologist. I want to be going to social work. I mean, we want to go do these things. And they're like, no, 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 Habibi, you have to make money. You have to make money. How are you going to get a wife? How are you going to get married? How are you going to provide for your kids? How are you going to do any of those things? And then I said, well, wasn't Jesus a carpenter? When Jesus is on earth, right? Like, didn't he, wasn't he like a carpenter? Can I be a carpenter then, right? If I want to be like Jesus, we want to be Christ-like every day, then I should be a carpenter, right? Like, let me be a carpenter. Let me go outside and whittle the wood outside, and I'll do what Jesus did, you know? And that's the icon that I, that I put up there. One of the, the few times we, the icon, like, represents Jesus, right, as, as a carpenter, right? And then I, I would try to push my parents all the time. I'd say, like, they'd say, well, what do you want for Christmas? Can I get you this? Can I get you that? I said, no, all I want is respect, you know? They'd be like, what gift do you want this year for happy for Christmas? I said, no, 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 I want dignity. I want respect. I want you to uphold my hopes and dreams, you know, that I want to go to. No, you can keep the Xbox to yourself. You know what I mean? Like, listen, if you just support me in my dreams of becoming a teacher, then I, you know, then I think we'll, it'll be a good Christmas, you know? All right? The stone that the builder refused, right, shall be the head cornerstone, right? The, the rock that the builder rejects will be the headquarter stone. And you're telling me that in my life, I have to pers- put the perspective that I have to be chasing a corporate ladder. I have to go to the best colleges and we'll get to that, right? I have to go to the best places. I have to work for the best people. I have to do all of those things because that's what Christ wanted me to do. And I struggle to make that impact. I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. I'm just giving it something to think about, right? Like how are we, right, aligning our values, our orthodox values and our orthodox values with what we do as our, as our behavior, right? And there's nothing wrong Right, we're chasing this, but I want us to flip this idea, flip the script on what we think, on what we think success is. Um, and this is very much aligned with a lot of the studies that the world shows today, right? A lot of the studies that come out, again, sociological studies come, this is a Harvard, Harvard Business Review article, actually just came out like last month, right? Out of Harvard Business Review. It says, why doesn't, satis- why doesn't success lead to satisfaction? Why do we consistently find highly, highly successful people unhappy? How many people do you know in your life, right, who are, you would not consider like the worldly view of success, that are very, very happy, and those who are successful and are miserable? I know millionaires who are miserable. I know people who are living at the poverty line who are the happiest people I ever met in my life. Why is this consistent, right? Why is this consistent across cultures, across societies, across countries? Why is this consistent come out? So when articles like this come out, I have to think about this a lot in my line of work, and I've talked to you guys about this before. I, I work with highly, highly, highly select, uh, successful athletes, like an athlete who wins a gold medal at the Olympics. And consistently across the board, some of you have probably seen like these HBO specials called like the, you see the HBO special called The Weight of Gold, right? Where Michael Phelps talk about, talks about his, all his mental health issues. After I've seen people win multiple gold medals at the Olympics and fight and fight unhappiness for the rest of their life. Success wasn't happy. I'm one of those people. I told you guys, I came back from the Olympics, I was miserable. Miserable when I came back. I won a gold medal. We had this like, like you, if on the, by the definition of success, I've checked that box, then why was I so unhappy? You know? By definition, by the world's definition of success, why wasn't I satisfied? Right? Why, wasn't, why aren't these people satisfied 
with these things. And so again, I, we say this, we know this every week because we hear this in the gospel, we hear this in our teachings, we hear this from the fathers of the church, we hear this on a weekly, weekly basis, we hear this, but we don't think about this when we walk out of the church sometimes. We'll hear on Sundays, like, we'll hear on Sundays everything we're supposed to be doing, and then we go home, and then we think to ourselves, but you know, that was, that's a really nice, it's a beautiful Bible story, but I got to make sure that my kid gets into Harvard, right? I got to make sure, right, that I become the CEO instead of just, you know, being the director at the company, right? But we think about these things. So how do they align? And again, the worldly research tells us the same thing. In fact, and I'll only go through this quick, because again, this is not about money. This is not a talk about money. This is not a talk about the, the, the people in the temple. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. But the, I will briefly say that the studies will continually show that there's no correlation between success and happiness. There's also no correlation between money and happiness. There's no, there's no direct correlation between, in fact, there have been found inverse correlations between the two, right? That most studies show that there's an inverse correlation between the two, between happiness and, and money. And not only that, is I just want to be very nuanced with this, right? There's someone to say, well, of course I need money to be happy. Well, of course, but there's a threshold, right, that we want to get to. So once that threshold of basic needs is meant, right, once we reach that basic needs threshold that, like, I got what I need, I'm no longer fighting for survival, right, that's the level where money makes happiness or doesn't make happiness, right? There's a very fine line where it comes, and that's where this study said, money contributes to happiness when it helps us make basic needs. But the research tells us that more money doesn't make us happier, right? And in fact, right, again, all you got to do is turn on the news or pick up Us Weekly every once in a while, right, while you're going through that. Put it right back down. Don't pay for it, please, you know? But while you're in the aisle at the, at the supermarket, right, and you'll see it, most of the time, success, money, right, does not equate to happiness, right? And again, we find it the opposite way. We find it a lot um, that, it works, that it works the opposite way. Um, and we hear this again. When I, the reason I tend to re- reference the, uh, uh, this Matthew verse where he talks about uh, where Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon, is I always really liked the definition of mammon when it comes to, because we're not, again, we're not talking about money in this is per se, right? We're not, money is not bad, success is not bad. Again, a disclaimer, right? Big disclaimer at the top. Money is not bad, success is not bad, right? How we think about it, how we value those things, that's what we're questioning today, right? So when I say mammon, right, what's the definition of mammon? Isn't just money. Money is like a, money to, to create the definition of mammon to money is just like, one singular line to it, right? But the definition of it is really more like the economy of the world. Are we, are we worshiping the economy? We can't serve God and then the economy of the world. So I have money, I have success, that's great, right? All of us, I have that. I'm one of the, I will confess, this is not an indictment, right? I have both of those things, right, at this time in my life. Money and success. But I can't serve those things, right? And then also serve the economy of the world, right? What is the, the marketplace of the world? What, what those things are, what the world values. I can't have both chasing power, chasing ego, right? It's more, more a matter of what we put our values on. And I'll, I'll give a quick plug on a book that I read when I was going through this midlife crisis lately, you know, um, that was helping me through this was, um, uh, it's a book called The Purpose Path. Uh, his, uh, his name is Dr. Nicholas Pierce. And I had the pleasure of meeting him uh, when I was in Chicago, actually, at your alma mater Northwestern for a minute. Um, uh, so Dr. Dr. Nicholas Pierce, he, um, he's also a reverend. So he lives this like hybrid lifestyle, right? He's like a, a business consultant. He teaches at this business school that I was taking a class at, uh, leadership school I was taking a class at. Um, he's a reverend, uh, pastor uh, on the weekends. And then he had like consults on the side. And then he wrote this book and I thought this was really powerful. He was teaching a lecture where he was at and he gave me this book for free. And this is God's, this is how God's will I think works, right? Because I was going through this at this time. I got to meet this guy and he hands me the book. I got to only hear him talk and hands me the book and everyone in the class, and I got to read this on the plane. This was, 
almost four years ago now, right? And I've read bits and pieces of it all those four years, and I appreciate it, what he's saying. So again, he talks about the purpose path being this, what we've talked about right here, right? What we're talking about today, this idea of what is my purpose in relation to the world and from this Christian perspective. So it's not like a business leadership book. It's actually like a Christian leadership book, right? Like what, from this perspective, it's like loaded with scripture all the way through. And he basically breaks it down into four things. He breaks it down into these, excuse me, five, five things. So what are these five questions that I'm asking myself? A, one, what is success? Who am I? Why am I here? Am I running the right race? And am I running the race well? If you took a pause during this Lent, right? If you just took a pause in this, in this Lent for a second and you asked yourself those five questions, I think it would be a very strong meditation, right? Not like a beautiful meditation where we're just like on the glory, but practical meditation with Christ, right? Ask yourself those five questions again. What is success for me? Who am I? Why am I here? Am I running the right race? And am I running that race well? Am I doing a good job running whatever race that is, right? Am I putting my best into whatever I think that is thing I'm trying to do? Or am I just running that race haphazardly? Am I jogging, right? Am I doing it for fun? Am I doing it for different reasons, right? He talks a lot about vocational courage in there, right? Like this idea of having vocational courage, right? That one of those regrets, go back to the American Regret Project, foundational work and boldness regrets that men's people. One of the biggest regrets people have is staying in a job too long that they don't like. That's like in the top five, right? I stayed in that job way too long. I didn't like that job, right? I didn't have the courage to just get up and leave. I didn't have the courage to get up and start my own business. I didn't have the, the courage to walk out on this, on this situation because the money was good, right? The fame was good. The power was good. The title was good, right? How do you have vocational courage in this? But again, in that meditation, right, I would ask yourself these five questions, and I really, really powerful asking yourself that question on multiple, multiple occasions, you know? Um, and I hopefully sparking some thought here, hopefully sparking some thought and then we can ask some questions afterwards. Again, this is not, this is just me sharing, right, what I'm thinking and where we're at and then we can talk a little bit more. Uh, there's a great um, sermon that Martin, the, Rever- the Reverend Martin Luther King gave. 1956, he gave this, this, uh, this sermon for the first time. In 19, and, I, and I think I've talked to some of you guys about this before um, as I really, it really affected me when I heard this sermon. So in 1956, MLK gave this sermon and he ended up giving this sermon like 50 times over the, cor- over the course of his life. And the sermon was uh, MLK imagining if St. Paul, our St. Paul here at St. Paul's Church, right? Our St. Paul imagined what it would be like for him to write a letter to the Americans. Like if St. Paul were to visit America, America didn't exist at the time of St. Paul, right? But St. Paul was still around today and he visited America, what would he say? And he visited all these other places, right? We just went through this in high school class, right? Uh, right? We went through the whole search, the whole path of St. Paul and St. Paul's journey, Right? And he traveled the world and he went to places and he went to Rome and said, listen, I got to write you guys a letter, right? You, <laughs> I got some things to say to you, right? I got some things to say to you people who are in, you know, what is now modern day Turkey, right? In all these areas where we're at. So imagine if, and I thought this was a really good thought exercise for us. Imagine if St. Paul came to America today, what would he say? What type of letter would St. Paul write to the Americans as he came through? And one of the things that I, I uh, I won't play the video, I'll share this with you guys later. I won't share it with you because this is what I want to get through, right? But one of the, thing, the few, few things that came out when he talked about when, when MLK was imagining this letter of St. Paul's letter, he said, I'm afraid that many of you are more concerned about making a living than making a life. I'm more concerned that many of you are worried about making a living instead of making a life. You have allowed the material means by which you live to outdistance the spiritual ends for which you live. Think about that one again. 
You have allowed the material means by which you live to outdistance the spiritual ends for which you live. And he talks about Thoreau. He says, your poet, your American poet Thoreau, used to talk about improved means to an unimproved end. America is the land of the plenty. We all came to America because it's better here, right? It's better here, right? It's easier to, get, easier to get the things that we need, right? Things are more accessible. It's the land of plenty. We've built the largest skyscrapers in the world. We've built these, the, 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 some of the greatest cities. We've built all these societies for us. We've made this what would be called an improved, improved way of doing things, but an improved means to an unimproved end. Have our material gains here in America, the things that we've built here for ourselves in America, do they match the levels of spiritual gain that we should be striving for? My answer is probably no. Uncle Sammy, again, let's go back to the service. Those of you who are there, um, it, was a, it was a beautiful service. His, his, uh, uh, his daughters uh, uh, shared a story uh, about him, and, and uh, God bless him and the family for allowing me to share the story with them. But because they shared it at the funeral, I imagine I'm, I have permission to share it here today. But they, he jo- they joked about how Uncle Sammy uh, would, go into the, would go into the bathroom while his daughters were getting ready right, for, uh, for church in the morning. And he'd say, I need to give them a kind of like a snark and, you know, this like smile. And he'd say, I hope you're putting as much time into your hair and makeup as you do to your soul, you know. And they'd like, like razz him and joke him on this, right. Uh, it's a beautiful story. But if you think about it, this is the same thing that MLK is trying to say, St. Paul would be saying to us today. Are you putting as much time into the world as you are into your salvation? Are you putting as much time into those material gains and material means that you are to your own, to your own self? Do they match? Because, again, nothing wrong with that, with that side, right? But is this side matching that side, right? Are they two, are the two, and how are they living together, right? And how are they living together in this place, right? It's a really, I, I would encourage you, I'm not going to do it now for time's sake, but if you go, it's a quick Google search away, but it's like MLK's St. Paul's Imagine Letter to the Americans, and he talks about how there's more integration in your nightclubs in America than there are in your churches, right? This is the time where churches were segregated, right? Where churches were completely segregated racially, right? But your nightclubs are integrated, but your churches can't be? Ask yourself, America, is that the church that you want for yourself, right? Here, here where you're at. Um, I'll play it some other time. Another thing to think about that comes with, this, with, our, with our, our thinking, and this is another lentil pause that I'd like us to have, right? Like another lentil pause for us to have in this idea is that no one has ever become poor from giving. Another thing for us to think about, right? No one has ever become poor from giving. And does this anxiety over scarcity, so part of this like, Part of this immigration that we talked about, the things that we inherited from our parents, the things that we've inherited by coming here, there's this like scarcity thought, right? That if I don't get it, someone else is going to get it, right? If somebody else moves up in the, in the at work, then I'm not going to get my chance. If somebody else gets an A, I can't get an A in the class, right? If somebody else buys this thing, then I don't have one for myself either, right? And so one quick reflection to add to, your, to the reflections out of this talk would be like, does this idea of scarcity thinking does it affect how we discern on a daily basis, right? Does it affect how we discern all the things that we're trying to do here, okay? And I think this is where it shows up for us the most, right? I think it shows up for us as parents, and particularly where we're at right now. I think this shows up in the college space, right? So I've spent most of my career teaching, coaching, and working with high school seniors. And I'm looking at the parents of a lot of high school seniors right now, and a lot of juniors, juniors in, 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 in high school right now, right? And I've spent most of my time there, and the kind of anxiety and the kind of value system that we place on college in America is very, very unique to this country, right? It's very unique to this country in how much anxiety and stress come to the college process, right? And I want to ask, I think we brought this before, I said this again, and I'll say it again. The question we should be asking our children 
is not what do you want to be when you grow up. The question is who do you want to be when you grow up, right? Who do you want to be when you grow up? What kind of person do you want to be when you grow up? What kind of person do you strive to be? What kind of person do you want to be? Not where will you go to school, not what will you do when you grow up, but we ask that, those very worldly questions to our kids all the time, right? And at this point in time, I'll give you the spiritual side of it. There's obviously the spiritual side and the orthodox side of this. I'll give you the worldly side to it too, is that, again, the data and the sociological studies and even the professional business studies show that there is no correlation between a co- the co- your college degree and where you go to school and success. But we have adapted that as our own. The only correlation, and this is why you see this so much in like U.S. News and World Report and some of these things, right? They'll always say, this college graduates, graduates people who make the most money, right? You are expected, right? This salary if you go to this school. You're laughing. You've heard that before, right? Have you heard that before? Hey, if you graduate from USC, you're going to make this kind of money. I taught at Bucknell University for, for six years. I, had to, I sat in admissions offices every day. I'm very intimately familiar with the college admissions process. And I would sit in the admissions office all the time. And like, what are you going to tell these? Under, why, how are you going to convince these people to come to Bucknell University in central Pennsylvania? Well, here's the only thing that we can really quantify with data. What we can quantify is if you come here, that you're probably going to make more money than other people in other places. That's what you can say. Bucknell graduates make 40% more salary right, than a Colgate graduate, right, than, than a Northwestern grad or something, right? Yeah? Yeah? That's probably true. But it doesn't matter. We're laughing because it doesn't matter, right? Because why would, I, why would I be talking about money with my kids in terms of college, right? We overvalue. We overvalue what college does for us. And I can tell you, some of you in the, in the Sunday school WhatsApp chain, I sent a podcast recently about mental health and high school students, right, out to, out to everybody uh, on this. And what is the number one anxiety for high school students? One of the number one places of four sources of anxiety for high school students on a yearly basis is their college process and what they're thinking about in terms of college. And nothing gives them more stress on this in this college process than when we overvalue things that aren't valuable. Well, you have to go there. You're going to be successful if you go to this college. And we just know that not to be true. Well, what is, our, what is success? What's success? Well, we know that from an orthodox standpoint, we have the different definition of success. And I can tell you that the world says this to us. This is one of the lies that Satan puts in the world for us. This is one of the lies the devil tells us. Go here and you will be successful and you will be happy. None of that is true. None of that is true. Where does our, we already said this. People can win the highest levels in athletics. People can become the most successful, famous actors in the world. They can be the richest CEOs on earth and be the most unhappy people. So what makes us believe that college is now going to make us feel better? That college is going to make me happy. The college is wherever makes you happy, whatever fits your needs. And whether that is a community college, a state college, a private college, wherever the college is, that's what we should be promoting. We should be promoting our, what they know to be, to be true, Right? I could talk about this for a long time. I have a lot. If you ever wanted to really geek out on college admissions and what it's about and what colleges really do for us here in America, I can talk about this for a long time. It's really, really bad. It's not good. It's not good because what we have created is a system that promotes inequity and pushes our kids into really, really stressful and anxiety-ridden places that are just based on falsehoods of the world, right? And it's, and it's really rough. It's really rough. In fact, I'll do that. And maybe I'll talk about college another time, okay? Um, so just as we, as we med- continue to meditate in this Lent, right? As we continue to meditate in this Lent, ask yourself this, what types of people did Jesus elevate and who did he admonish? Satan so said this in the sermon today, right? I think Archdeacon Mark said in the sermon last week. What is the, le- every story in the Lent, every story in the Lent, 
I, I switched the wrong one. Every story in the Lent. Every story in the Lent is about who? Is it about the successful? Is it about the rich? Right? Is it about, no. It's about the outcasts. It's about a Samaritan woman. It's about a repentant prodigal son, right? It's about a repentant son who comes back, right? It's about a, a man today who was, who was born blind, who then after he was healed, the whole town hated him. That's not success, right? We heard this today in the gospel. He's healed, and then he goes back home, and everyone's mad at him, right? And he's widely disliked for being healed by Jesus Christ, right? Amazing, right? What types of people did Jesus elevate, and what types of people, right, did he admonish? So when we think about this, and we think about Lent, and we're meditating in this time, right, this idea of what is success, who am I, am I running the right race, am I running it well, right? Ask yourself these questions, right, especially when we think about this as we go on, okay? And how does this show up for us? So in churches, how does this show up for us in churches? How does this show up, again, the sociological aspect of this, like how does this show up in our churches on a daily basis? In my mind, this shows up for us in three ways. It shows up for us with our children, how we raise them, what kind of values are we raising with our children? We talked about this last night, again, in our, another plug for the Saturday night uh, parenting group, right, and what we're reading. Uh, and this is a beautiful, another beautiful tie with, um, Malmachus, the, the author of the book we're reading, Parenting Towards the Kingdom, this is another tie of psychology and orthodox spirituality, right? So we're taking the principles, basic fundamental principles of psychology and orthodox spirituality, and we're blending them into one. And what I'm talking about today is taking just basic tenets of sociology and what we're thinking about and, and what we're dealing with society and blending it here with our orthodox spirituality and where we're at. So how are we raising our kids? Are we raising them with the right values? Remember the question I asked earlier, not what do you want to be when you grow up, who do you want to be when you grow up? What kind of person do you want to be when you grow up, right? It shows up with each other, how we value ourselves. How many times do you find yourself judging other people about their levels of quote-unquote success, where they went to school, where they didn't go to school, what type of job they have? And it shows up within our systems because it shows up within how we highlight and promote each other, right, when we come into this. And this is what I really want us to focus on here at St. Paul's as a church is how are we within our systems promoting the fruits of the Spirit, versus promoting success. How many times have you been around a, a group of, of like, this is gonna happen to you right now because we're in, what is it, April? So every high school senior right now is choosing where they're gonna go to college very soon if they haven't chosen already, right? So watch yourself, watch yourself in church, in the parking lot, in the kitchen, when those kids come to you and then they say, and there's five of them, and one of them says, I got into Stanford. And then another kid raises their hand and says, oh, I'm going to Pasadena City College. And another kid says, I'm going to Cal Poly Pomona. And another kid says, I'm going to UCI. Watch how everybody reacts in the circle when they're talking to that person. And then as an Orthodox spiritual community here, are we promoting the right values with our kids? And then by rewarding the wrong things, right? Oh, you're going to this school. Amazing, Habibi. Oh my God, you made it. And then when the kid says, I think I'm just going to go to community college and right, figure my life out, stay close to home, stay close to church. And you're like, that's okay, Habibi. It's okay. You know, it'll be all right. You know, I've seen this happen. I've seen this happen for decades, for generations, right? Oh, it'll be okay. It'll be, you'll be all right. You're going to go to Cal Poly Pomona? It's okay. Oh, you have a safety school. You have the safety school. Have you heard this term safety school, right? We say this a lot. Say, it's, it's safety school. What's a safety school? Going to college and being somebody who goes to college is a wonderful blessing and a wonderful opportunity no matter where you go, right? I, this is my second choice. How about the first choice being I get a chance to go to university. I get a chance to continue my education. I get a chance to give back to my family and I get the chance to be the person who I want to become. So can we build a community here at St. Paul's that in an environment that encourages and rewards connection 
wisdom, and the fruits of the Spirit. This is as simple as it gets. When we are with our kids and we're with each other, when somebody shows us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, we should reward that behavior. We should try to positively reinforce that behavior. When we're with our kids, this goes back to what we're talking about on Saturday nights. When we're with our kids, are we happier when they show us the A on the test than we are when they show us good self-control in a certain moment? We generally are, right? We'll say, we'll punish them more for the C on the test than we will for, hey, you were really patient in that situation. I really appreciate how patient you were in that. I love the joy you're bringing into this situation. I love how good you've been this week with your brother and sister, right? I love how kind this situation is. Are we rewarding kindness or are we rewarding academic achievement? So it shows up in our systems and it shows up in our community. And can we flip the script? And that's what I'm talking about, right? Inevitably, that's what I'm talking about. Not can we flip the tables that, that Jesus sat, sat, uh, flipped uh, in the stories, right? Can we flip our mind? Can we flip our head into a place right, where we're no longer valuing the world. And just like our teacher St. Paul said, so the last thing I'll say, our teacher Paul told us this very directly, right, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If we're going to live by the Spirit, if we're going to talk this talk here, then let's walk the walk, right? This is very direct, right, what we're taught here. And again, when we can find a way that our behavior and our values, our orthodox values, we can find a way to them to align in our systems and the way we do things, then I think we'll create a community that only God will reward a hundredfold, you know, over time and time. So, and glory be to God forever. Amen. Um, so, just continue to build off of the talks we've had in the past and keep going, but I'm, I'm happy to hear thoughts, questions, concerns, st stones thrown, you know, feel free. Uh, John, 